Welcome back to Pod Rocket, a web development podcast brought to you by Log Rocket. I'm Emily, producer for Pod Rocket, and today we're answering your questions about JavaScript runtimes. We recently reached out to our listeners to send in their questions about runtimes, including Node, Deno, Bun. So we're taking the time today to talk to our panel of experts to answer your questions. So before we get into it, let's welcome our panel. First, we have Matteo Kalina, co-founder and CTO of Platformatic, Node.js TSC member, lead maintainer at Fastify, and much more. Welcome back, Matteo. Thank you, Emily. I'm glad to be back here. Lovely to have you again. Next, we have returning as well, Kevin Winery, DevRel at Deno. Welcome back as well, Kevin. Very stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. And before I go on, remind me, is it Deno or Dino? Dino is the canonical name. But when Ryan Dahl, the, the creator, introduced it for the first time, he actually called it Deno and then later decided that Dino was actually a better pronunciation. So both versions of the name are kind of out in the wild. But Dino is sort of the current canonical pronunciation. Good to know. Love the lore. Welcome back, Kevin. Finally, we have Paul, our Pod Rocket host, here to round out the panel. Welcome back as always, Paul. Thank you for having me, Emily. It's awesome to be here because I learned from these guys and participating in the conversation. So super stoked to get into it. Yeah, I'd love to have all our differentiating voices. So let's get into our listener questions. First, pretty broad. Emmanuel asked, how does a runtime actually work? And in the same vein, Zion asked, could one of you explain JavaScript runtimes like you're talking to a five-year-old? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can jump in first and Matteo, feel free to correct me where I go off the rails. Go for it. Absolutely. Mine is a three years old, so I need to practice. Yeah, no, I, uh, being close to like the intellectual capacity of a five-year-old myself, like that's sort of the mental model that I maintain about JavaScript runtimes. So, well, most JavaScript runtimes like Node and Dino typically have a couple of primary components. One is like the JavaScript engine itself. So the thing that's actually going to be evaluating, interpreting, executing JavaScript code. So in the case of Dino uh, and Node.js, uh, both are built around uh, V8, which is the JavaScript engine uh, used in Google Chrome browsers and uh, lots of other environments. And Bun uses uh, JavaScript Core, which is another open source JavaScript runtime maintained by Apple, used in Safari. So there's usually that JavaScript engine component. And then there's usually the runtime itself, the thing that you interact with from the terminal that manages processes and interacts with the file system, does networking and socket communication. That runtime component is typically written in some kind of lower level language like C or Rust or Zig, which is in the case of, of Bun. And the communication between those two components usually happens over some kind of native code bridge that allows messaging from the context of the JavaScript engine to whatever this runtime component is, whether it's in Rust or C or, or what have you. And the way in which that works is pretty wildly different, kind of depending on uh, which engine and which uh, JavaScript runtime you're talking about. But the JavaScript engine is usually responsible for sort of serializing and deserializing data that kind of goes from the context of uh, the JavaScript engine into native code and then from native code back to the JavaScript engine. And there's also usually some translation that needs to happen to map sort of the asynchronous operations of JavaScript to similar constructs that exist in native code. So in Rust, 
we use an async IO library called Tokyo that actually sort of runs file system operation, or I guess it's more accurately described as like the way in which Rust code handles asynchronous operations, along with Dino Core, which is the library that we created that wraps V8. You can write Rust code that'll sort of asynchronously respond to stuff that's happening in the JavaScript engine. So yeah, that's a lot of words to say that, you know, there's those two primary components. There's a runtime component and a JavaScript engine. And the big thing that they do is manage sort of sending data over a bridge from one uh, place to the other and sort of data going in either direction. Do you have uh, kids, Kevin? I do, yes. It's uh, 17, 18, and 13. Oh, I was going to say, you you must have a really smart five-year-old. Uh, yeah, maybe that's, I maybe went past. <laughs> I love the talking of separation of those two components, though. I feel like that delineation is a great line to draw in the sand about, like, we have the interpreter thing, and then we have the actual lower-level bridge components that allow us to invoke these like syscalls or whatever it might be underneath. So I thank you for that. I really appreciated that delineation. It made a lot of sense in my mind. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, obviously lots lots more to it than that. But I, I think like there's actually another really great question in the mailbag about what it takes to build a JavaScript runtime too. And we could dig into, there's some related questions there too. Kevin, you just brought up a great point about like someone did ask about like how you could create a runtime. Uh, Aurora actually asked, how complicated is it to create your own runtime? So how hard is it to make the runtime? Okay. A runtime is composed, as uh, Kevin said, it's composed by two main things. You need a JavaScript engine and something to do IO or an event loop. And these are the two main components. There's a third one, which is the API that you are working against, that the user would use to do this. Because by default, if you take your JavaScript engine and the, the IEO, but then you need to expose it so that people can do, I don't know, fs.read file or fetch or whatever. Now, taking a JavaScript engine and taking an event loop library that's are widely available now, it was not the case when Node was created. It was super hard to get an event loop. In fact, a group of Node.js engineers actually wrote their own event loop library called LibUV, one of the precursor in that field. Dino is Tokyo, and there are a lot of those available. Now, it's a well-renowned pattern, often called is the reactor pattern. So you have those two components. You take your JavaScript engine. Right now, a lot of people are experimenting with QuickJS, for example, because it's a very, very simple to integrate a JavaScript engine. So you could actually get your own runtime done pretty quickly by taking QuickJS and pair it with uh, an event loop-based library, can be LibUV or something else, but LibUV, it works very well with those two things. But I don't know, maybe there is a crate for QuickJS or Rust or some binding for Zig. So you might want to experiment. Now, combining these two is not hard, okay? Apart from learning a little bit of C, C++ tricks or Rust or Zig, whatever, and how to plug them together is not that hard. But then you want people to use the runtime to build actual applications. And you need to create the, all the APIs that are available out there. And that's where the problem becomes, okay? Because there is a lot that you need to be able to have your own runtime to make it useful. So you need access to the file system. You need access to the sockets. So you need to create sockets to talk to, I don't know, a TCP socket or something like that to talk to other peers. You need to do uh, TLS. Now, this is a word of hell, which I'm going to take and mention, and then I'm going to close and pack it and not think about it anymore, okay? But it's a massive 
black hole of complexity. And oh, if you don't have OpenSSL, you can't do servers, you can't do HTTP servers, you can't do HTTP clients. You need OpenSSL for everything. You can't talk to a database. Like this is super complex. Like those things, like you need the, the stream primitive, the uh, TLS primitive are really complex. Okay. So having time to console log is actually not super hard. Having all the other components and have all the other components work reliably, it's really hard. And on top of that, you need to implement the HTTP layer. Now, you have HTTP 1, HTTP 1.1, HTTP 2. Now you have HTTP 3. Oh, gosh, um, it's a lot of work, okay? And even if you just to focus on HTTP 1.1, which is today the most popular one, you have a lot of problems to have a production implementation of this, okay? It's close to an eye, like it might be very simple. Oh, I look at the RFC, I can do it. Anybody can read the RFC and do it. And then you got five security reports the moment you publish this on the internet. And your server gets destroyed by a denial of service instantaneously because it's a bad implementation. So yeah, it's tough, mostly on the public library and providing a rock solid public library. On top, you have the major problem out there, which is Developers expect Node.js compatibility. And Node.js API is not part of a standard. There is no public test suite. And it evolved in that way because Node.js grow too quickly, too fast. So some API does not even make much sense to some extent, or they make sense, but they've evolved in an unpredictable way. And therefore, it's very hard to manage to some extent. So yeah, that's the hard part of building a runtime. And you see... Ban has been struggling massively on it. They claim Node.js compatibility when they released, and they were not Node.js compatible. And a good chunk of NPM does not run on Ban right now. And uh, Dino is quite a bit better because they literally lift off a good chunk of Node.js core and bolted their runtime under it. And that it possible for Dino to be way more compatible than Ban so far. One thing for me as an outsider who has not myself dabbled in the lower levels of a runtime and like contributing to one, right? Looking at the complexities from a thousand foot view, it's sort of like there's a lot of parallels you can pull from any microservice or like SaaS setup. Like the term load balancer, you would never think, okay, like I'm making like a system thing that still exists. Like you need to balance maybe IO streams on your system if the load is too much. How do you page through memory? How do you? get rid of your cache, we can call it the garbage collector, right? The, you know, your things in memory. There's a lot of these like fundamental system considerations that if you're not in the runtime space, you can see in your software development, your systems, your cloud architecture that will have strong parallels down into the JavaScript runtime, which I'm thinking, wow, you really need to double click on all of these system edges and, and different vertices of interaction that you wouldn't think exist there, but you do need to tackle them to have that publicly available API, like, like you're saying with Mateo. It, it, it does become a gargantuan task at that point. Yeah, I mean, you, you consider like a, a relatively simple API that exists in Dino, which is just Dino Serve, which is kind of the Hello World HTTP server API within Dino. That is massively complex under the covers to make that work in any kind of reasonable way. Like you have to figure out, but it uses web standard request and response objects as part of the interface. So 
You have to create those objects. You have to make sure that you can serialize them in a reasonably fast way because those operations need to happen very, very quickly. But the actual web standard for those objects means that those objects have to have a whole bunch of like functions that hang off of them and operate on the data of the request and response, which makes it hard to very quickly, you know, instantiate lots of instances of those objects. Like, so like the, the devil is really in the details as you figure out like how to make this work at any kind of reasonable level of scale. Let's move on to our next question. A couple of people asked about standardization, especially with a bunch of new runtimes coming to the forefront, not just Node anymore. So Craig asks, projects like Bun are bringing a lot of opinions about best practices for JS runtimes. Do you believe we'll see more standardization around runtimes or different best practices depending on the specific runtime use case? Thinking about like one guest we had on at PodRocket, we were talking about security practices, especially in web development. In Node, there's this push that is coming and we won't be able to stop about what is compliant code? What does it mean to write compliant code? And how do you have a secure environment? This is one thing that Dino does really interesting. I'm sure we're going to get into later in the pod. Compliance is a never-ending force. It's an unstoppable force of alignment. So it'll be interesting to see how that flushes out in the next 10 years. For me, there are two answers to that question. So those questions can be unpacked and divided in two blocks. One is about standards. What are the standards and there are the standardization efforts? And one is about the patterns and APIs. I'll take the standard one. It's the Dino, Cloudflare workers, and Node.js essentially are collaborating, are loosely collaborating in this group called WinterCG that aims to standardize behavior across certain things. Okay, Mainly it has started for, like one of the successes that we had was uh, the cookies, like the cookie headers. Uh, this is one of the most nightmare scenario or snafu or whatever that you can call of Watuji, which is the group that standardized the browser APIs and the web and so on. And it's basically, if in in a server-side runtime, you need to manage cookies, for example, and you need to read the cookie from the header subject. But the cookie header is a very weird header that was specified in a very odd way back in the days. It is the only header that have a very specific format on the wire. And unfortunately, that resulted in header being lost. And the LDR, we call collaborated and converge on the API that I think, if I recall correctly, was proposed by Luca Casonato from Dino to have it on the top of the header subject. So these standardization efforts are happening. And this is, I think, pretty good from my point of view. It's great. But there is also the fact that the market and the users are saying, well, we need Node.js APIs. And this is the other side of the fence. So it's not that they want the Node.js API. They want the Node.js APIs with the bugs that are in Node. You know, it's not even that they just want those APIs. They want those API plus the bug. If you fix the bug, even if Node fixes some of its bug, the user complains that we fixed the bug. <laughs> so I'm not, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's funny. It's, it, it's, it's a funny problem. But part of the Node.js APIs are essentially considered the standards. And users expect them to be there and work in a certain way. I have a question for for you. Uh, another listener, Ryan, was asking why there was a Cambrian explosion of runtimes in the past few years, because a lot of them have come out. Do you think that sort of behavior is contributing to people saying like, all right, in this really short time frame of who I've been as a developer, I was using it this way and now I want it to be backwards compatible or 
maybe in 10 years when people refresh their brains and, and we have a new set of folks out there? The, the, the reason why there were so many things happening at the same time, it's due to market forces and the fact that Node.js not having a big company behind it or a company behind it, a volunteer-driven project and something that essentially no one can control. It's not really liked by a certain group of companies out there. And then people might want a commercial entity to work against because it's controllable and they they can phase it and have essentially be the BFDL of it and make the decisions. So market forces and the fact that there is nobody to extract value from, like, how can you extract value from no these days? You can't. It's the, everybody's good. Okay, so you can't. Therefore, entrepreneurs and startups and so on are trying to build new approaches to create better technologies because I'm not saying they're not better technologies. Of course, right. To, to attract, to be successful in business. And it's business as usual, I would say. But do you feel like perhaps because there was so much innovation in a short time period, that is creating this effect of people wanting the bugs, like you mentioned, like, oh, I want this bug because... See, yes, that's absolutely, okay? People okay. want the bugs. No, then Kevin, has, I think I've has so many stories about this, but that is the bugs. And that's why all these new runtime are, guys, are hitting a wall and said, we want Node APIs. Because there are 2 million modules on NPM that they want to use and applications that they've already written, and how can they do all of that? And the, that's where they've hit the, the wall. So we had new runtimes because Node Node lagged for a few years. The leadership of Node had to fix a a few things in how it worked, in how it operated after the foundation happened. And that created a little bit of gap in making certain critical decisions and making certain things happen and making the decision-making process very quick, very straightforward. That two-year gap allowed these new runtimes essentially to flourish, which is a good thing. And there was a very fresh dose of reality for Node that... Now we are not alone anymore, so we can't really ponder for a, for two years to implement ESM support, which developers want. So, Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason why like uh, runtime alternatives to Node, I think, are emerging now is the like the success of Node and sort of the history of Node as it's sort of built, like sort of compounded over time, has resulted in some amount of debt as it relates to complexity, especially I would say, like in the average Node project. Like when you're bootstrapping a Node project today, it's very likely that before you even write any code, like you might have like three or four configuration files, like a build step for your TypeScript, and that there's just like a, a tremendous amount of startup cost to to actually actually writing non-trivial code in a node project these days. So I think like one of the things that's appealing about Adino or a bun is we've sort of taken a look at the sort of new set of intelligent defaults, you might even say, for like a new web development project and baked a lot of those into the runtime itself. So like uh, built-in support for TypeScript is one of the big ones there. And like a built-in uh, test framework, linter, you know, some of the tooling that is, is sort of table stakes for a lot of projects these days. And, you know, sort of taking that out of, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be in user land because we know every project is going to, to going to need it. So some of that like complexity debt, I think, has been a reason why alternative runtimes have been interesting. And, and I think Mateo said it too, like just no node is is such a successful project that it's very hard to change anything without like having pretty serious downstream effects. You know, like it's just it is a very 
challenging to like move node forward in a bold direction that might break any of these you know thousands millions of applications running on top of node so they so it's just it's going to be very hard to like really innovate and again like you know there's the baggage of you know, Node had to invent CommonJS as like a module system. And now we have ESM, which has emerged as a web standard. And having those two things coexist with this giant ecosystem of modules is very challenging. And within a new like uh, runtime environment, you have the chance to say like, okay, we're going to sort of take uh, look at the best of user land, make that part of the runtime, and also try very hard to adhere to web standards. And that's kind of a has been a challenge for Dino, but it's also a feature of Dino is that like we really try to create a very browser-like programming environment because we sort of assume that like the web platform is going to outlive all of us in terms of our careers for sure. And bringing like server-side JavaScript development closer to the web platform, we think is ultimately going to be like where we will end up. But it's a lot easier for us to get there as like a new runtime than it is for Node to kind of evolve in that direction. Although I do believe that at some point, kind of those paths will merge and, you know, Node will get a lot closer and we'll get a lot closer to like Node compatibility. On the topic of bold, brash moves and progressive ads for nodes, like you mentioned, Kevin, being sort of challenging. Another listener, this is just like a very related question. Uh, Juan was asking, for performance reasons, is it better to incrementally add features to the runtime or to make one from the ground up with the plan already crafted? And and some of the stuff that you were talking, it sounds like there is a lot of value in saying like, hey, we can determine what's in user land and what's not. Kind of create a chasm right here and develop on your own branch. Do you say that you feel like you're in that camp of there is value to saying, hey, it's a Frankenstein? And I also found it interesting that you said that we might get closer to merging in compatibility down the line. That's kind of what I would expect. I would expect like there to not be a tremendous amount of differentiation in terms of like the user-facing API or even like the performance characteristics of a lot of these runtimes. Hopefully, like the winter CG efforts continue and we continue to kind of standardize like what developers can expect. And there isn't as much of a meaningful difference if you use Node or Bun or Worker D or whatever the runtime environment would happen to be. Yeah. And, and I think like maybe the question behind the question is like, well, couldn't we have just like maybe built different APIs into Node, say, or like native extensions to Node? Or is it better to kind of look at creating an alternative runtime? I think like to the extent possible as a software engineer, you want to build on an established foundation whenever it's like reasonably possible to do so. The cost to creating something new is always much higher um, than you think it is. You lose a lot more than you think you will lose by going from an established API to a new one. So generally speaking, it is desirable to start from established foundation unless like sort of the primary thing you're trying to accomplish is hamstrung by that existing foundation. And in the case of something like a Dino, the big thing was like, sort of adherence to web standards and trying to create an environment that was largely based on that. But that has its own set of challenges too. Like Dino wanted to do HTTP imports for modules. Um, And there were some interesting things about that, but also lots of things that don't work very well about that model. And we can, I'm sure we could get into that. But yeah, it's always a challenge to create something new. And probably the only reason to do that is because there's some kind of core design goal that is you know, either very, very hard or impossible when you create something, uh, unless you create something brand new. There is the angle about performance. If you implement something from scratch, okay, 
you can make it faster. And with a fresh API, you can create a faster one. And mostly because whenever an API is chiseled into the stone and used by millions of developers, you cannot easily change that. So if that API is inefficient for whatever reason, and by inefficient, if I, I can say, if it causes one page fault in the memory, I'm not saying it's inefficient in generic case. I'm just saying because an API that can do, for example, a server 100,000 HTTP requests per second is not inefficient in any form or fashion. But you can make one that is faster by exposing a different surface, that creating less objects, making things less complex, do slightly different trade-offs. It's actually possible. So, for example, Dino Server, Bun Server, and so on and so forth have done, they've created slightly better, slightly faster HTTP APIs, mostly because they create less objects, they have better boundaries, they can be faster than the old school HTTP.createServer. But I can ch change that. Like a lot of people complain about Node being slow and uh, or, or Node whatever, and then they said, well, I can change that. If I change that, if you take the, H the inbound HTTP create server, is actually slower than the Node one, if I recall correctly, or last time I checked, okay? It, it's the, the bound server that is faster. And because this that API that we have is actually problematic for various reasons. So you can't really improve too much on that overhead in there. So yeah, anyway, that's the point of view about building something, a new API for doing things, but then you have the adoption problem that people actually want the old one. And then you're basically an innovation conundrum. We're talking a little bit about performance. I want to pivot into like a day-to-day -day for devs who want to choose a runtime. Clifford asked, what are the performance considerations when choosing a JavaScript runtime for specific tasks, such as server-side rendering, real-time applications, or microservices? And how can developers optimize for these scenarios? Well, okay, precursor to any of the explanations you guys were going to give, as a, somebody who's more in the user space, the application space, it's like, where am I going to run this thing? And what am I running? That's probably the, the number one decision that goes into what runtime you're going to use. Because they can generally all work to do a lot of things you need to do. It's just there are some things that some won't work for and some they just will do better. So it really depends on, on what you're trying to accomplish at the end of the day. It depends, right? That's always the answer. Uh, yeah, very contextual, as always, with these things. I think one axis to think about these days is, I think you said it, Paul, was like, where, where is this going to run, right? So like, if, if you are trying to run code on the edge or JavaScript code on edge servers, and you need them to start up very quickly and be globally distributed and those types of things, it is likely that you'll look at using a JavaScript runtime like, like a Dino or a Worker D, where it is possible to run in those environments in a reasonably efficient way. Most of the time, runtimes are actually very optimized for running on the edge. Like the version of Dino that runs in Dino Deploy is not necessarily the same version of Dino that runs in the CLI on, the, on your desktop because there's considerations for how quickly you can start up a V8 isolate and how you need to you know, manage that environment has ramifications on the behavior of the runtime. But stepping away from those things, like most of the time if you're running on the edge, then you're either using Worker D or Dino. Those are kind of the two primary edge runtimes that exist today. Like it's certainly possible to run Node at the edge and there's ways to do that. But sort of assuming that you will use Dino or uh, Worker D in an edge environment 
is probably a safe assumption. In terms of the different use cases, every JavaScript runtime out there is perfectly capable of rendering HTML on the server. I think there's some scenarios in which um, it might be desirable to use one um, approach over the other. But yeah, I don't know. I'll pause there and think a minute about other things beyond where the code runs, how I might answer that question. My take on this is, as a developer, you need to focus on where on your application and what you need to ship. That's genetically the case. It's probably part of the reason why Express is still one of the most downloaded modules for NPM, despite being legacy, slightly unmaintained, and not being kept up to date with the JavaScript standards. It's literally everywhere. And I've tried several for years to, to displace it. So I'm not, I'm, I, 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 I kind of have experience or two about this topic, but the problem is use what get the job done and where it gets the job done. Okay. I have in the past, I have used uh, Node.js uh, on the server, of course, for doing various things. I've used uh, Vercel for server side rendering. For example, I've used just servers. But then I've also used a lot of Cloudflare workers for lightweight on the fly processing at the edge. It really depends on your use case and what you need to run. Having said that, Dino, I've seen quite a few cases where Dino shines fantastically, which is, for example, if you need to embed a JavaScript runtime in another system, uh, it's probably one of the best right now in for that scenario. So it's really, really good. And because of how the permission model works and how you can set and configure, it's actually very, very good for integration, for example. And that's also why it makes it a very good candidate to run on the edge, you know, deploy and so on. It's really solid. Really depends on what are your integration pattern, okay? In certain applications, you can't really connect from the edge to your database. For various security reasons, this is not allowed. So you need to have some servers running somewhere and close to your DB. That can also be a problem for other stuff, but... There's a lot of different applications, so it really depends on how you ship code. And in the end, all these JavaScript runtime world, to some extent, doesn't matter. And what it matters is you folks that are listening, shipping apps. It's an answer, Matteo, that uh, I remember we got one time when we asked uh, somebody, is it worth it to use Tailwind? And they were like, who cares? Like, are you making good apps? Yes or no? And if yes, then you should probably use it. And uh, on the topic of Matteo that you also emphasize, it, it's not just where you run, like I was saying, but also what are you running, your application, uh, like the security model you brought up. If I'm building something and I want it to be secure, I can save so much time and headache and potential team friction if it can go from a principles of least permission, kind of like how Dino offers out of the box. And that's fantastic. It would be diff difficult to get in a different environment. Kevin might disagree, but for the normal end-user developer, it doesn't change anything, close to anything. What it changes is for them better, and that where there's a massive difference. But for the end-user, you need to talk to other peers, you need to open sockets, you, you need to read the file system. And th I guess I'm thinking more of like in a, in a secure, like I've worked on some crypto services and stuff that you run in an isolate environment. It would be really nice to have like a read-only access to some of those file system nodes. Yeah, the, the granular uh, runtime permissions um, does tend to come into play in more specialized uh, scenarios where like, you need to have some kind of background processing that 
you really, you can't allow like local file system access, say, or like access to the system environment. Um, I'd say like for most like web, like sort of everyday web development use cases, it, it doesn't come into play a ton um, necessarily, but uh, it's a, it's an option that exists like in those environments or like maybe in a continuous integration environment, say, where like you want to execute code that's uh, that you don't have full, you know, trust in, um, and you don't want to expose your secrets from the system environment or, or things like that. So there's certainly scenarios in which the, the granular runtime permissions really actually do matter quite a bit, but yeah, for day-to-day web development stuff, um, it, it matters sometimes, but usually, uh, usually less so. I have two more questions I want to ask. The first, we got a lot of questions about Bun. This question came up a lot. Desiree asked, do you think Bun 1.0 could replace Node in the near future? While it does have backwards compatibility for Node, it is still in its early stages and not yet ready for production-grade applications. And I know this is contentious because there's been a lot of like questions about how fast Bun really is and all that stuff. So I'd love to hear your takes on that. Let me take this, which is probably <laughs> a lot for me. But I think Kevin can express a more moderate opinion than mine. Bun is a fantastic piece of engineering. It made certain things a lot faster. However, it's not a drop-in replacement for now. The question now, and it was not when he did 1.0, it's getting better month by month, release by release. They are fixing a lot of bugs. Recently, Jared even find some edge case state machine bug in some of the node stream stuff where he's entering a state in node streams that should not be possible. And this for is throwing an error that the streams are, are going bananas. But the generic side of thing with BAN is I don't think personally 1.0 can get to node drop-in replacement. Can it get into the future? Depends on how much engineering effort is getting that will be received. They're working very hard to get things over the line and improved. So never say never, but they are fighting an uphill battle right now. You can see it if you go inside the repo. They currently have 2.2 thousand open issues, mostly for backward compatibility with they have a huge pile of backward compatibility issues. Part of the problem is that BAN cannot run, like BAN does not support most test framework for Node. Let's take one of the libraries I maintain. I wrote some of them using the Node Tap test framework. Node Tap, like BAN is not capable of running Node Tap tests. I cannot run the test suite of my module on top of BAN. So we cannot even prove that the module is actually working as expected between Node.js and BUN. And I cannot add BUN support to my CI in case I want it to. So I cannot even prove as a maintainer that it runs on BUN. Up until we can get to a point where I can do the same thing that I do in Node then that I can do in BUN, same things. Yes, I would say it's, we are far away, far, far away from that future. Yeah. And and I'd say like the, I mean, is it ready for production? I'm finger quoting on a podcast. Nobody could see me finger quoting, but like that question is kind of nuanced too. There's certainly a sort of production workloads or things that you can do with Bun today. You know, f- people are using Bun for certain build time tasks in production, if you will, today and are realizing some nice benefits from doing so. So I think there's certainly like 
interesting, important things that you can do with Bun in production today. Button compatibility is really, 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 really hard. There's just, there's so many layers to getting that right and in any kind of useful, meaningful way. It's been many engineers on the Dino team have been working full-time on it for a very, very long time to try to even get close to the level of like being able to use most of NPM. We are making a lot of strides in that direction such that a lot of sort of the rank and file like NPM packages will tend to work on Dino because we have exposed a lot of the Node core API. But we're still not at a place where we would ever consider like claiming to be a drop-in replacement for Node, nor is that necessarily a ultimate goal for for Dino. So yeah, I, I would say like if you are running a you know, some kind of non-trivial node project and you're thinking like, oh, is it time to like move that to Bun and run it in production? It would be very hard for me to imagine that that is going to work out real well for you. Like if you were to try that right now. Emily was bringing up the everyday developer wanting to know which runtime is best to use. And of course it comes down to what you're running, where you're running it. But Kevin, you mentioned there's some areas that even Dino, there's a lot of strides that still need to be taken if they even will be taken. And I'm curious, like, what are some of those API realms that feel challenging that a lot of these runtimes that from a thousand foot view are struggling with? Yeah, well, I mean, Mateo kind of talked about it, but there's just a lot of like exotic edge case behavior between Node and NPM that we sort of encounter in very sort of surprising, interesting way. You know, people can't see Mateo grabbing his head and shaking his head right now, but it's pretty funny. But it's very tricky. Like, So there are a few anecdotes that I can share, like Tailwind as a library. The way that it expects some of its peer dependencies to be installed kind of is sort of uh, unintuitive in that, but maybe not unintuitive, but it is very closely aligned to the workflow of how NPM installs uh, packages and sets up the node modules folder. It expects other packages to be in the node modules folder to behave in in the correct way. So there's a lot of just kind of like the these bits and pieces of how node and npm work together, how they populate the node modules folder, how they, you know, yeah, just like quirks of the APIs or bugs that are actually important and have since been sort of like adopted by library authors of like, oh, node works in this way, so I'm going to have to write code that works around this bug. They rely on the freaking bugs. It's very tricky. It's it's a moving target. It's it's kind of a, a bit of whack-a-mole. I think the place where we're trying to get to with Adino is being able to sort of reliably use a lot of the NPM ecosystem. And that is working reasonably well. But the battlefront right now for compatibility is a lot of these higher level frameworks, whether it's like an Astro or a Next.js, have workflows that are very tightly coupled to Node and a package JSON and how NPM works and those types of things. And we think we can get there to a place where you can use those frameworks in the context of Dino. But it, it's kind of a mixed bag for how well those things work today. Some of them actually work pretty well. Like SvelteKit, for instance, actually works pretty well in Dino today. Like a lot of the Vite-based frameworks, because Vite is fairly stable in Dino these days, do actually work pretty nicely. So it's something where if you expect to bring your favorite framework from Node to Dino, that's something you'd want to prototype first. Like it's not sort of a slam dunk that it's going to work out of the box. I want to go around to each of you. And Uche asked, what trends do you see emerging in the world of JavaScript runtimes and how might they impact the development landscape in the coming years? Kevin, can you quickly give us one trend you see? 
I think like TypeScript has really emerged as a way that new ECMAScript features are entering the language and kind of entering community usage. I think TypeScript is going to kind of move from like a optional, like compile the JavaScript language to, and and maybe it's there already, but it, so to sort of becoming the default programming language for a lot of projects. So I think like TypeScript support and how well you support TypeScript from like your library as a library author is going to continue to be pretty important. And, and I would kind of see that, that trend continuing over the coming years too. Mateo, what trend do you see coming in the future for JavaScript runtimes? Security, security, security. To quote Baltimore or something that I'm, I'm, I'm laughing, the point at which Node.js is these days is that we receive between two to 10 reports per week in various ways. Most of them are just not true, not valid, but it's so much on the spotlights that being able to address, resolve those and be very transparent about it is very critical. It's going to be a key differentiating factor for anything that passes a certain threshold of success. And it's probably the biggest challenge that we face. How, how do you... Even just the spam, okay? I'm saying like the part of the problem is the spam. And uh, how can you keep having resources to do the development and keeping the project alive when you are constantly under attack? And these are not features, but they are key part of the project. So yeah, I think that is probably the other most important part that you need to keep an eye on compared between the various runtimes. And that's probably it. I wouldn't say much more, but those two things are TypeScript. And I agree with Kevin on TypeScript. That's a given. And Node.js are thinking very hard on how to get that feature or a close a good implementation, a good developer experience out of that feature with the different peculiarities that Dino has versus Node. So Dino could do certain things that Node could not do. So it's funny. Dino standardizes TS config. So I admire them for that very hard. It's a, a standardized TS config is kind of amazing, but with Node, it's the bag is out. Like TypeScript is not a language, folks, okay? TypeScript is a multiverse of languages based on what you put in your TS config.json. So it's like saying, oh, we support TypeScript. It's not necessarily true. It says we support a universe in the TypeScript multiverse, essentially, and uh, we will not be able to do the same for various reasons. Uh, including the fact that everybody's doing all sorts of things with TypeScript. So if you take some TypeScript code from one, it doesn't work on the other. So, yeah. Paul, I know Matteo took yours. <laughs> What's your trend? I was going to say security and just the standardization of uh, how to write compliant code, how to write compliant systems. And even though there is a small set, you know, a small subset of where to deploy highly secure, highly compliant runtimes or systems, you know, they will always have their time in place. But since I will say something different, I'm going to go with Wasm integration. Wasm is becoming more popular and just being able to write stuff in a variety of languages, compile it down and run it somewhere is cool. And I think that is not going to die. But security number one. Thank you everyone for joining us today, answering all of our listeners' questions. It was a pleasure to have you all as usual, I'm going to go around and ask you each where people can find you. Kevin, where can people find you online? 
I am still on X slash Twitter at Kevin Wondering if you want to uh, hang out there. But more importantly, github.com slash Dinoland is where all the open source fun is happening with Dino. So definitely check that out. We'll also drop a quick teaser for uh, JSR.io. It's a new project we've been working on, which is a TypeScript first, ESM first module registry, which will work with Dino, but also works with all NPM based projects. So definitely worth checking out. Should be opening up for a public beta for everyone to try before too long. Probably by the time this airs, I imagine you'll be able to head out and use it yourself. Very exciting. We'll have to have you come back on and talk about it. Mateo, where can people find you online? So people can find me uh, online on X Twitter at Matteo Collina, without dots, without anything. And also at nodeland.dev, that's my newsletter where you can find my links and, and so on and so forth. Uh, you can also check out my the company I founded called Platformatic and take a look. And that's it. Awesome. And Paul. Here on PodRocket, come listen to me talk more. <laughs> Always love you hosting, Paul. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Again, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And if you are a listener and you have questions about anything in the web dev community, let us know. I'm on Twitter. Everyone else's handles and everything will be in the show notes. And thank you all again for joining us today. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.